is indeed your friend. Our text this morning comes from John chapter 15. And hopefully I won't break down as much today delivering this message as I have in my study preparing for it. Spending time with Christ in his word is a is a time well spent. I encourage you to do it. It's one of the joys and privileges of having to get up here and speak every week is it causes me to go look into God's word and find something to talk about. And there's many a good time. And sometimes I'm taken um, pretty deeply into it. And those times need to be more and more often. And again, I encourage you to read the words of Christ, and particularly in the Gospels. And maybe some of that will make a little bit more sense as we continue here in John chapter 15. I was hoping to really kind of finish out this chapter, but as I spent time in it, and I was going to move our focus from verse 20 forward to the end, which is 27. There's so much here, I'll just see what I can get done today. And uh, whatever we don't finish, we'll pick up next time. This is in context here of the hatred of the world towards those who would follow Christ, his disciples. It's specifically given to the disciples that are in the upper room, but it is meant for all who would follow Christ and hence be a disciple of Christ or a Christian. Verse 18, we focus on that the last few weeks. If the world hates you, Jesus says, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you're a Christian, if you're a disciple, if you're a follower of Christ, don't expect to be treated any differently than he was treated. At this point in history, in just a few hours, the hatred of the world will be demonstrated as they take Jesus Christ, an innocent man, and crucify him. Societal system under the direct influence of Satan himself, the prince, the power of the air, hates Jesus Christ. It was not good enough for them just to kill him, just to do away with him, at least in their mind, as they thought. No. If you read the gospel account, and I encourage you to do so, they had to torture him in addition. And beyond torture, they had to humiliate him to a great degree. This is great hatred against Christ. And Jesus tells his disciples, look, they they hated me. And they're going to see it. And they're going to hate you. Because you love me. Now the world, the world system, they won't demonstrate their hatred to that degree, 24-7, and to its fullness. They may feign that they love you, or in this case, Jesus. They may sing out hosannas on Sunday, 
But by Friday, they'll be yelling out, crucify him, crucify him. It is an amazing turn of events and quite revealing of what Jesus is saying. They hated him all the time. They just superficially praised him, maybe in a superstitious way, maybe in hopes to get something in it for themselves, whatever it was they hated Christ, of who Christ actually really is. So Jesus gives his disciples a fair warning because he's going to send them out into the world as he does with you. If you remain here on earth and you're a follower of Christ, if you're a disciple, there is a purpose. And when he's done, he'll call you home. But for now, you're here and it is to minister the word of Christ, to minister to the body of Christ. But note that those that are outside are diametrically opposed. And so Jesus tells his disciples all along in the Gospels that they indeed are to follow him by picking up their cross and coming after him. He didn't mix words or give them a false idea of what they were going to get into. He says, if you want to follow me, be prepared to be humiliated, at the very least, to be misunderstood, to be gossiped about, thought ill of. Oh, and yes, in some cases, to actually be tortured and killed. We know the rest of the story. They all would die, all these apostles. They all will be humiliated. They all will suffer painful deaths. John, the apostle writing, is the only one was spared, but church history tells us he, prior to this, he was actually boiled in oil. Somehow he survived that event only to be sent to a penal colony on the Isle of Patmos. But God has a purpose for that, to write the book of Revelation. But he did suffer greatly. They will not be called, that is, those disciples and all disciples, anyone who follows Christ. I'm going to be clear about the message. We are not calling you to health, wealth, prosperity, and good times. That's a false gospel. There is someone else who preaches that, and they look pretty good doing so. They may smile a lot, and they may jump around a lot, or whatever else they might do, but it isn't true. Christ will tell you the truth. He tells you the truth here. Expect persecution. Live godly in Christ Jesus and you will suffer. And perhaps, not that we're trying to bring it on, but it will naturally occur, particularly if you're in opposition to the world. The world system that is under satanic influence, by the way, has no interest in the message that is right here. They don't have any interest. So they, they're going to have to criticize it from the beginning to the end 
and create some other fanciful way to push this back out of their mind. And we'll get to that. Because this is here, this is Christ's words, and they have no excuse. They're guilty as charged, so what would you do? You would try to rewrite the law, but they cannot. It is settled forever in heaven, I declare. The world system is not only just apathetic towards what you do, but it's actually antagonistic, and it'll show its ugly head at various times in various ways. So be prepared for it. doesn't always, but it will, ultimately. Prior to this statement in verse 18, Jesus said, if you remember, verse 17, I think that's key to keep in mind, What are the disciples to do? What is the church to do? They are to do what? To love one another. Verse 17. You're going to need to love one another because there are going to be trying times. Difficult times are ahead. Everyone else is going to hate you. So, within the body of Christ, we share the love of Christ and we're commanded to do so. We need encouragement to help insulate against some of the persecution and the hatred that will undoubtedly come. MacArthur provides a nice summary of this idea. He says, Christians are the most loved of all people by God. And they are the most hated of all people by Satan. We are the most loved by God and therefore lavish with all of heaven's blessings. We are the most hated by Satan and therefore hit with all of hell's worst. And we live in that world. The most loved and the most hated. The most blessed and the most assaulted. We have the most spiritual treasure we are likely to have to forfeit the most earthly treasure. That's how we live. That's why Jesus said you better count the cost before you become a Christian. You will be loved by God, but you will be hated by the world. That's what Jesus told his disciples. You're going to be hated. Verse 19 of John 15 He explains, as we reviewed the last few weeks, if you are of the world, the world will love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Notice first, you're not of the world. That is, you're distinctly different from the world system. Two, chosen out of the world that is, chosen out by Christ for salvation, sanctification, and service in ministry to one another and the proclaiming of the gospel. This hatred, then, is fomented, if you can see naturally, because there is a sense in which those that are in Christ who have been taken out of the world then are foreign from it if you will, foreign from this world system. And Christ explained that's 
who he is. He does it in this terminology in John by saying that he is from above. I'll just read you this verse from a previous passage we looked at in 8.23. And he's dealing with his enemies. And he says to them in John 8.23, You are from, and here's the perspective, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. Do you see the distinction? Christ was clearly distinct from the world. I'm from above. You're from below. I am not from this world. You are from this world. That's the distinction. So there is a sense that when Jesus walks this earth, he is a foreigner, if you will. A stranger, if you will. And so therefore, there's a lack of familiarity due to that distinction. Not in every respect, you understand, but generally the perspective, the ideology, the, the direction. He would simply say it this way when they asked him, are you a king? He says, my kingdom is not of this world, John eighteen thirty six. So be sure to keep that in your eschatological view point. Things are actually going to get worse, not better. And there will be a kingdom that will be ushered in. It is the kingdom of God, which is now among this world in the church, and yes, persecuted. But at the end of the age, all the earth will be full of his glory in perfect radiance to where every eye will see him, even the ones that pierced him. Those that follow Christ are united to Christ and therefore in the same manner are not of this world and in a sense for him. This distinction, then, I'd argue, is really one of the catalysts for this t- tension, if you will. But it is, it is more than dislike or disdain. People have learned to restrain some of their dislike and their disdain in social expectations and societal norms in which we live. But it will be manifested, this dislike and disdain, as it was in the case of Christ. It always exists, even though it appears dormant. As Jesus' ministry continued, this opposition to him, this hatred, this dormant hate that was there all along, it really kind of ramped up. The more truth he spoke and the more miracles he did, the matter they got at him. <laughs> he wasn't speaking evil or lies or anything like that, and no one could accuse him of it. And he wasn't ever doing anything wrong or bad. In fact, it was always helping, not hindering. But the more ministry he, he engaged in, the more proclamation of it the matter they got at him. In John chapter 8, again he explains why 
Don't you understand what I say and what I'm doing? He's speaking to the world. Because you can't bear to hear my word is what he's saying. I'm speaking the truth and you can't bear it. Why can't the world bear it? John 8, 44. He simply says this, and he doesn't mince words, by the way. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. You see, Christ speaking truth, they don't want to hear it because they're listening to their father, the devil. They're listening to lies. There's no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks lies out of his own characters, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That characterizes the entire world system under satanic control. So why don't they want to hear Christ? Because he's not speaking lies. He's speaking something different. So, but I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth, and you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Now, I've quoted that before of Christ saying it. I would never ask you to respond to that about me because I can be convicted pretty easy. It doesn't take long. I recognize it in my own life. But here, Christ speaking the truth, asks them straight up to his enemies. Anyone? And all you hear is crickets. They cannot convict him of anything. If I tell you the truth, then he asks, why don't you believe me? And here's ultimately why. Because whoever is of God hears the words of God. That's what Christ was speaking. The truth. Nothing but the truth. The words of God. And they were not of God. They instead were of Satan. The reason why you don't hear them is that you are not of God. It is a demonstration of it. Rebel against this. It just demonstrates that you're of your father, the devil. You're not in some neutral position at all. There are only two sides, one or the other. You're either with Christ or you're with Satan. That's what he's saying. So there's a distinction in those that follow Christ. And that distinction is demonstrated that they are indeed in Christ. They are of Christ. That is, they believe Christ. They have faith. And therefore, they actually, and this is where we're going. I'm winding up here eventually. They know God. Those that are in Christ actually know God. The world and world system would claim that they know God. They don't. They have no idea. You know why? Because if you don't know Christ, you don't know the Father. And Jesus will mention that here in our text. Those that are in Christ know God through divine revelation in Jesus Christ. That revelation grants a different worldview, a different perspective, a Christian perspective, if you will, that is shaped from above, not below. It is heavenly in that sense and not earthly. It is not culturally bound. It is Christ-bound. 
And then the end of our text, which we probably won't get there in verse 27, 6 to 7, He's got to mention how this is facilitated. It is through the very dynamic work of the Holy Spirit who Jesus himself with the Father sends to his people that indeed they might taste and see that the Lord is good, that they might be granted enlightenment, if you will, to see and savor Christ, to behold him in his word, to provide conviction of sin, comfort in Christ, and courage to face whatever circumstance they might find themselves in. The world doesn't know God. They never have. They don't listen to Christ. They create a Christ of their own image. My Jesus they'll say, versus your Jesus. My God versus your God. But I assure you this, what Jesus has said then and what he has charged his disciples to declare is simply this, that they don't have any excuse. And it is a call to listen to the words of Christ and the work of Christ. Let's look at it in our text beginning in verse 20 of John 15, where Jesus explains this theme. And note here how he relates himself and the Father and then emphasizes that they don't have an excuse. You'll see the word guilt here, and I'll unpack that in a bit. That's the whole point. The world is without excuse, particularly because of the incarnation of Christ. That's what he's going with here. And then the proclamation of those that Christ has sent. Verse 20. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. On the flip side, which we won't get to today, but notice here, if they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. So not everyone rejected Christ, right? And in their proclamation, there will be people who believe. So they will proclaim Christ, right? And people will believe. But for the large part, there is a rejection. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they don't know him who sent me. That's God. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the, the works that no one else did, well, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray that indeed we would bear witness of Christ. May the witness of Christ now work on our own hearts. 
Grant us courage and conviction and comfort in the ways that we need enlightenment from the Holy Spirit, illumination, courage to proclaim this great truth. And I pray in doing so that many will come to confess Christ as Lord. Save all of our sons and daughters. May they all come to praise your holy name. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Ultimately, why the world doesn't hate, uh, why the world does hate, should I say, Jesus and those who follow him is because they're in a state of rebellion against God. I hope you have seen that thus far. Verse 21, Jesus puts it this way, they don't know him who sent me. Who is that? The Father. They don't know God. They have other names and other ideas about God, but they had a God of their own image, not who God truly is. God is ultimately explained and revealed in Jesus Christ. The world is in opposition to God. They're in absolute moral rebellion against God, and they have no excuse. Jesus is saying... He is the final word that has come from God and no excuse. The world hates Christ, who is indeed the light of the world, because, as he would say, their deeds are evil. Exposure to the light only demonstrates their own immorality, their own rebellion and resistance of God. So they... Move to the shadows, if you will. Distract their view by putting up certain blinders. They occupy themselves with all kinds of things to a degree that they can push the reality of who God is from their thinking. And this will only lead to further darkness and hardening as their foolish hearts will become darker but they are without excuse. And beloved, you have no excuse either in rebellion against God. There's at least five principles or more here, reasons that I'd like to unpack, but since I go an hour and a half on introduction, I'll just hit one or two or see what I can do today. The first primary reason for the fact that there is no excuse for unbelief with anybody and with anyone that you might speak to today, tomorrow, or the next day is because God incarnate has spoken. That's what he's getting to in verse 22. Jesus Christ came in the flesh walked among us and spoke absolute truth. That's what he's getting at with this idea of not being guilty, no excuse for their sin in verse 22. It doesn't mean that they wouldn't have been guilty of what we might refer to as original sin. That's the sin of Adam. So we have to understand the context in which Christ is giving this. And just so that you're aware and know, all of mankind 
every single one, has been made sinful in their rebellion, in their alignment, if you will, in their union with Adam, their federal head. Some people ask, well, <clears throat> and have this idea in philosophy of a clean slate. People start out that way. But they started out of the clean slate. They wouldn't die before they knew right and wrong. There's an inherited sin that causes death. And ultimately, Adam represented, and if you want to find text, I'll go through a couple. You can follow along or just listen. I'll jump through a few quickly here and then in our own context in John. But just where you can find this doctrine is in Paul's exposition in the book of Romans where he teaches salvation in that great book. In 5.12 of Romans, he will state categorically, therefore sin came into the world through one man. In context, he's talking about Adam. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. There is an idea that, no, God doesn't give everybody a a free choice, if you will, to do, to do it again, to do a do-over in the absolute most perfect environment in a perfect man. Adam made a choice in intentional rebellion against God and all of his progeny, all who followed him were born in that sin. That sin spread to all men. The gospel is the good news, however, because as that one trespass led to condemnation for all men, Romans 5, 18, so one act of righteousness, that is this one, Jesus Christ, one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. All who are in Christ live. All who are in Adam die. We tell the church at Corinth, Paul would, as in Adam, all die, so also in Christ, all will be made alive. That's the distinction, 1 Corinthians 5, 15, 22, should it say. In context of John, if you remember in John chapter 3, where he preaches the gospel to Nicodemus, who comes to him, and he thinks he's okay, and Jesus explains to him, unless you're born from above, that's what the word means, a born again, we often translate it, born a second time, a new birth, a heavenly birth, you won't even see the kingdom of God. It, there's a supernatural regeneration that must take place. Why? John three eighteen, because if you don't have faith in Christ, you're condemned already because you haven't believed in the only Son of God, Jesus Christ. So Jesus, we're here saying you're not, they're not guilty. If you, they wouldn't be guilty if he didn't come and speak his words. He's not talking about their original sin. People did die. He was saying guilty of what? 
of Christ coming here in this ultimate revelation. This particular word of Christ that was given is signed, sealed, and delivered. There can be no greater word. That's what he's saying. There can be no greater truth than the truth that comes directly from the lips of God. What more could God do? I mean, if you wrote it in the sky, maybe you think it was some sort of illusion. But, but no, here, flesh and bone comes. They could touch, they could see, they could live with Him. He spoke, they, they saw His life. God incarnate. He came and spoke. This is the sin of hating the ultimate revelation of God in Christ Jesus the completeness and fullness of that explanation. And beloved, you have no excuse. And no one does as you proclaim this word of Christ. Here's how the writer of Hebrews puts it. Long ago, Hebrews 1, and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament. You know that. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Their idea floating around was how great and holy angels were. They're nothing in comparison. You remember, they fall down and worship him and they cry out what? Holy, holy, holy. That's who this is. Don't think of Jesus any lesser than who he is. Oh, veiled in flesh, no doubt. But this is God incarnate who has come, who has spoken, and there is no excuse. And beloved, the challenge is simply this. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus Christ. Hear and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Hear him say, come to me, all ye who, are lab- who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. And... If you're a follower of Christ, if you're a Christian, if you're a disciple, beloved, I would challenge you to spend a lot of extra time in the Gospels and learn of Christ. It's a great place to listen and to learn and to behold and to see this word that Christ has spoken. I mean, I'd have to sit there and read all of it to... (laughs) every bit of it for you to get it. So I encourage you, perhaps if you need a reading plan for this year, here's one. 
Read the four Gospels. It's time well spent. Maybe just read one and read it over and over. The one that really focuses in on the glory of Christ more than ever is this gospel we're in in John. And so I encourage you to consider spending time in it. It's a great witnessing plan, by the way, to share with others. I'll never forget talking to a cultist who thought of Jesus as a archangel. It's interesting, by the way, when you deal with false religions, quite often, if you think in terms, you may not know all they believe and whatnot, but what do they think about Christ? What did he say? What do they believe about him? That's what's crucial. That's what Christ is getting here. He is the final word. Listen to him. I talked to occultists and challenged them on the person and work of Christ. And they were challenged. They were just accustomed to working out some little script response. And I was off the script before you know it. And then I could see an interest in the words of Christ. And I said, i tell you what you do. And I hand him a little gospel of John. I said, go read that prayerfully and ask for Jesus Christ to make himself known. Beloved, if you humbly seek for Christ, he's not hiding. He will make himself known. And beloved, if, if you are in Christ and you're following him, I say pray the same prayer. And prayerfully read through his word and, and maybe it will grip you at some point in time and overwhelm you. Just listen to some of the words in the Gospel of John. We've been through these, but I'll just read a small selection to whet your appetite for future desire. 651, Jesus, can you see him there saying, after, after he feeds these 5,000 and uses this as, as probably 20,000 as many, and he uses this as an illustration in 651, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven, that same analogy above, right? Down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give is for the life of the world. 737. Here's the feast day, the last day. They, they had this, remember this thing with the labor and the water and all that, and Jesus uses that as an illustration. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 8.12, again, the festival feast of Hanukkah and the lights, and he declares in 8.12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Close to where we're at, one of my favorite sections, particularly this year, I encourage you to dwell in it. Let not your heart be troubled, John 14. Neither let it be afraid. 
In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, or would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You may be there forever in the Father's house. And so as he leaves, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He's not a liar. Listen to him. He has given his word. This is God incarnate. What a great worship plan to behold Christ, to believe Christ. Secondly, there's no excuse for unbelief because the greatest word, the greatest revelation, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, has been given and Christ spoke. But beyond that, it's one thing to say. It's quite another to do. And Christ has done the greatest works. First his word and now his works. Notice verse 24 in John 15. And this little phrase is there. I hope you saw it. And he's using the same kind of teaching about not guilty of sin, Again, it's not the original sin he's talking about, not guilty of what sin? Of this sin, of denying the very ultimate work of Christ. There's no greater word given or could be given, and there's no greater works. And notice this little phrase here, what kind of works? The works that no one else did. No one else did. There are other miracles, but they're not many. If you look through the Old Testament, there's just a few short times in which that occurred and not much was given. Moses and, and, and Joshua confirming the message and the messenger, that's what they're for. Elijah and Elisha, the same. There's not much there. Read the Gospels the words about Christ, and you're going to get a totally different picture. And I hope that has been painted for you in your mind. When Jesus Christ began his public ministry, can I tell you who was healed? Everyone. You can find that in the Gospels. He went everywhere, and everyone was getting healed. It was like an escalation of it. In our gospel here, John just lists seven specific ones. And he does it purposeful to garner belief. The changing of the water and wine, John 2. Healing of the nobleman's son, John 4. Healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, John 5. Feeding of the 5,000, as I mentioned in chapter 6. Walking on the water, same passage. Healing a man born blind, John 9. And, of course, the resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11. These are just mere representations. John is strategic about the signs that he lists here. He's calling out seven distinct ones representative of the myriads of miracles that Jesus did. And you don't have to take my word for it. 
John will tell us in his gospel 20 and verse 30 that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which were not written in this book but these are written so that you would believe believe in Christ and by believing you might have life in his name as I mentioned read the other gospel writers they talk about him going everywhere and people being healed everyone I remember thinking on this very thing at a passion play that was performed it's an interesting thing because it's a dramatic effect of of kind of what's going on there but what struck me more than anything else and caused me to weep in my chair was just that image of Christ coming to town and people that were diseased were healed. People that were deformed were made right. And people that were dead came to life. Could you imagine what effect that would have even right now and people in the falsity of their gospel attempt to pull some sort of hoodwink crazy thing because people want to see that. But this is real. And it really happened. And it was multitudes and multitudes of people that were healed and were helped. This is, this is Christ who has done work that, that no one else can do. They have no excuse. You have no excuse. Jesus Christ can raise the dead. Do you trust him? Do you believe in him? Do you proclaim his greatness and glory? I'm quickly running out of time. I hope I've whet your appetite enough, but I think I'll spend a little bit in John chapter 11 to close this out. So that we'll just look at one of these examples of his miracles. And it's a great one. It's the seventh in John. We've looked at it before. It's John chapter 11. And I'll pick up at verse 25. John eleven twenty-five. And you know the background. I've preached on this already. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they were friends, personal friends, acquaintances of Jesus. Jesus knows that Lazarus is going to die, but he has a purpose in it. We don't know what his purpose is, but he has a purpose. He has a purpose in all things. But the ultimate thing to note is not this temporal problem that occurs, and it is a great one, and it brings great sorrow to them. They're all crying and weeping. But the joy is to believe that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? And that's what he'll say in verse 25. To Martha, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And here's the question Jesus is saying, do you believe it? You have no excuse not to. He's demonstrated it. There are witnesses of it. It isn't just that he said it, but he actually did it. And here is the count. 
Well, she says, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Well, that's a good confession. You're the Messiah. You, you are deity, that is God, and you came into this world, right? He is from above. He comes into the world. She recognizes who Jesus Christ is. And after she does that, she goes to her sister Mary in private, who's weeping over the death of her brother. And Martha tells her that the teacher's here, and he's calling for her. Well, she gets up quickly. She goes to him. Now, Jesus was just outside of the village at that, part, at that point. And notice verse 31, I'm in John 11. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, if you remember when we taught on this, the Jews or the Jewish leaders, these were people that were having really kind of fake empathy for Martha and Mary, and they just wanted to get on the bandwagon. They thought she was going to go out and do her little uh, ceremonial acts of weeping, not genuine, there to the uh, tomb. They're unbelievers, is my point. When Mary came, however, to see Jesus, verse 32, what was her response to Jesus? She fell at his feet. This is an act of worship. It is beholding who Christ is. And even at that point, before he even did anything, she falls at his feet. And she recognizes, but her theology isn't strong enough. It's good, but it's not good enough. She said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now... <laughs> He upholds all things by the word of his power. <laughs> this is God incarnate. He has a purpose and plan for all that takes place. And even this, she doesn't know. So she's partially right here. But when Jesus saw her weeping, and note this, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved, verse 33, in his spirit and greatly troubled. I taught on this before. If you remember, this moving is he has great compassion for those he loves. He, he has great anger, righteous indignation against these who put up false belief. That's the idea of trouble here. They're coming, and they, they don't really mean it. She does, because they're not falling at Jesus' feet and worshiping him. That's the distinction, you see. They're just paying lip service to him. They're not worshiping him. This is God incarnate, who has already spoken. And he's done many, many works at his miracles. He's about to do a, a, a spectacular one in their sight, and he's troubled. So he asked, where did you lay? And Jesus wept, verse 35. And I think that weeping is on both sides. Understand the great compassion that God has for his own that he loves. If you are in sorrow and weeping, even though like both Martha and Mary, really, they don't quite understand fully what's going on. There is an empathy he, has a, he is a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, though we, we, we may not fully understand it. 
Don't ever miss the compassion. But beyond that, too, the weeping also includes this indignation against those who would not believe. Both are true. The Jews say, see how he loved him. But some of them said, see, this, is, this kind of tells where they're coming from, their unbelief. Well, couldn't he open the eyes of the blind? By the way, that's a miracle. And there's his enemies affirming that no one else did what Jesus did. He took somebody without eyes and gave him eyes. Couldn't he have kept this man from dying? The answer is absolutely yes. But he has a purpose in it. Not your purpose, he has his purpose. And so, verse 38, Jesus is moved again. And he came to the tomb. This moved again is troubled again on both sides. And this is the indignation against unbelief. So he comes to the cave and a stone lay against him. Jesus said, well, take the stone away. Martha's sister, the dead man, said to him, Lord, well, by this time there'll be, be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? He purposely allowed this so that there would be no confusion. This This would only be a miracle of God to regenerate decayed flesh on a body. It isn't just waking someone up who had been asleep It is actually regenerating their physical body. This indeed is the glory of God, the beauty of his divine attributes, the beauty of his ability to do all things. So they took away the stone, and Jesus prays then, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. Of course, they're one with each other. There isn't a time in which they're not heard, and there is not a time in which they speak, that, in which they conflict one another in their thoughts and their ideas. But he tells us in John why he allowed them to hear the prayer. I said this on the count of the people standing around so that they would believe, so that when you read this, that you would believe, so that the Holy Spirit would... would uh, enlighten your heart and allow you to see the significance of what's going on here that you may believe and so when he said these things he cried out with his loud voice you see him Lazarus come out and the man that had died the man that was in a state of decay came out still bound in these linen strips and his face then wrapped with his cloth. They're stunned, so much so that he has to tell them to unbind him and let him go. I mean, if a guy came in walking like this, wouldn't some of our reactions naturally be to go over and take that stuff off of him? No, they were astonished and shocked. What more should I ask today, could Jesus possibly do than that right there? And that's just one of them. I say none. There's no excuse not to believe on Jesus Christ. And the call and the command to all of us, beloved, is simply this, look and live. Believe his word 
believe his work, and live. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will give us great insight into your truth. Change us from the inside. Conform us more to your image. Cause great belief in the world of unbelief. And give us the courage to call others to hear the words of Christ and to see the work of Christ and live in his glory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, take a moment now privately where you're at to reflect and think on these.